0: Hello. I'm going to talk today on the subject Stop Worshiping Idols. That's an odd subject, isn't it? A few days ago, weeks ago, I don't remember exactly, I was watching a movie called An Affair to Remember. You may remember it is with uh, Deborah Carr and Cary Grant and it's a very poignant kind of love story where uh, they become separated owing to the fact that on the day that she's to be married, she, uh, in her enthusiasm to make the appointment, gets run over by a car, never has a chance to tell him, and for a long time there, uh, he thinks she stood him up and she doesn't want him to know that she's a cripple. And uh, so it drags on. It's really a, a sweet story, so perhaps I shouldn't say drags, but in a way it does too. Anyway, I remember looking at this thing at one point and seeing how with their great longing for one another, I said, you know, that's just really idol worship. And a friend of mine afterwards said, idol worship at its finest. (laughs) But uh, um, the the, uh, thing is that anything that we worship as a fixation, as an obsession, when we become infatuated with something, then... It is, in a way, idol worship. We think of idol worship, you see all the movies where they have the, the golden calf and people are all doing these sort of Bacchanalian dances half-dressed and uh, uh, worshipping this, this, something they've made with their own hands. But real idol worship is something that uh, you worship that's man-made rather than God-made. Not a golden calf, but... Uh, a, a job, a relationship, an ambition, a worldly hope, a human desire. All of these things, if we don't see them in relation to a broader reality, are likely, are inevitably going sooner or later to disappoint us. Romantic movies, adventure movies, whatever, they always end at the high point. Why? Because the next day, the old grind begins all over again. Paramhansi used, Yogananda used to say that uh, when uh, you have a movie of romance where two people, after much travail and adventure and trouble, finally get married, the uh, movie is cut right at that point, because, as he put it, the director doesn't want you to see them the next day with, uh, when the story begins of rolling pins and black eyes. Uh, Of course, marriage isn't necessarily like that, but it does have its ups and downs. Life does have its ups and downs, and the illusion created by Hollywood and by novels and so on is that you've reached the peak and you'll be able to maintain that peak forever. That isn't what life is like. We need to learn how to relate everything to a broader reality, otherwise we're going to get caught. We're going to get caught in disappointment and disillusionment. We're going to get caught in smallness. There's a a play, uh, Outward Bound, I saw it many years ago. It's probably a play back from the 30s. And uh, it's a very interesting play and very well written. It's actually, it takes place on a ship. And actually, this ship is the moment of death, the passing from this world to the next world. But there's a couple that never gets off the ship. They have to go back and forth, and uh, they they become sort of a comic couple. Every time they appear on the scene, they look at each other sort of lovingly, and once or twice is okay, ten times is bearable, and after that it becomes absurd. That kind of soupy smile that... Uh, uh, What makes it absurd is the fact that these two people have no other reality than one another. I've always felt that if any couple can be all in all to each other, they must be unusually stupid. Because this is a very big world to enjoy, many new things to learn, many new things to enjoy. We have so much that we can grow in, in knowledge and feeling and experience. And to become wedded to any particular thing, that's idol worship. Idol worship is not putting something on an altar and saying that's God. Idol worship is worshiping anything less than God as if it were God. In that context, many people in the West, many Christians, self-righteously condemn Hindus as idol worshippers, And yet, I've lived several years in India, and I've even heard this comment from Christian missionaries who had went, who had been to India, had gone to India, and had said that there isn't any nation in the world that is so full of love for God as India is. They have idols, but they, uh, those are not idols as as we've been raised to think of them. It reminds me of uh, someone who said that he didn't believe in in. Uh, idol-worshiping, and this man, uh, to whom he said it, was visiting him and looked up on the wall and saw a picture of that man's father. And so he said, take that picture down, tear it up. And the man said, what do you mean, tear that up, that's my father. And the man said, but it's only a piece of paper. And then the man understood what he was saying and uh, didn't carry the argument further. But in fact, the answer would have been, well, no, it's not my father, it represents him. It's something precious to me because it reminds me of him. And that is what images on an altar can do. They remind you of a greater reality that the mind can't easily focus on because it's so vast and impersonal as to be vague in the mind if the mind doesn't have some particular aspect of it to latch on to. In fact, in the Indian pantheon of all their gods, thousands of them, none of them is intended to be definitive of what God is. All of them attempt to show things that God does, destroying evil, um, uh, representing music and harmony, uh, conquering uh, uh, lust, Uh, helping to win victories for good, and so on. Each one of those represents a different aspect of God. One is the cosmic ruler. Another is the cosmic mother. Another is the heavenly father. Another is our beloved. You see, God is everything. It's not as if you limit him uh, to one little corner of space and say, there is God, and that's what he is. The Western attempt... To get away from this thought that God is just a heavenly father with a long beard, like uh, perhaps the Jehovah creating Adam on the Sistine Chapel, the painting of Michelangelo, the, the attempt that Westerners come up with to give God some less limiting definition is things like the cosmic ground of being and other equally insignificant from the standpoint of, I mean, do you really feel like praying to a cosmic ground of being? Do you really feel like bringing him to the dinner table and sharing your dinner with him? Do you really feel like going to sleep with him in your mind? It's somebody that you've relegated to the altar of a church to be thought about, maybe during the offertory on Sunday morning and during the service. God should be a part of your daily life, and that means that we should bring him into the context of daily life. God is our lover. God is our beloved. God is our friend. God is our mother, our father, our children. God is that rock over there and that flower over there. God is in the music that you hear. God is in the wind. God is in the stars. And God is none of those things. This is another of the great mistakes that people make when they talk about the Indian religion saying, oh, it's pantheism. Yes, it is pantheism, but what do you think pantheism is? Well, people will tell you, pantheism means making this universe God. No. Pantheism means that God is everywhere. What's the difference between saying God is everywhere and God is omnipresent? Omnipresent means that he's everywhere. To say that he's everywhere means he is in everything. And take that a step further. Where did everything come from? Where did you come from? Where did this ability to speak to you come from? Where did that television set that you're watching this talk on come from? You say, well, somebody made it. Who put that thought in that person's mind? Who gave him the intelligence to be able to make it? Who created the electricity that made it possible? There's one person, there's one being responsible for building the stage, writing the plot, assigning the the plots to the different actors, acting those parts through them doing this, the uh, scenery behind the, the actors, the backdrop. He does everything. God is playing with God. God is loving God. God is teaching God. Don't you see it's all He? Now can you say, in that case, I, I sh- uh, that rhododendron bush over there must be intelligent. I could sit down and play chess with it. Well, you know that's not true. The thing is that when you dream at night, You assign different levels of intelligence to what you're seeing. You may see what looks like an inanimate rock or cliff, but nonetheless that cliff is a product of your own intelligence, and without your intelligence doing the dreaming, that cliff wouldn't be there. So there is a measure of intelligence even in that cliff, but it isn't able to talk to you, it can't play chess with you, it can't reason with you. It isn't as if you you needed to listen to an Al Capone and say, well, God, you, you've given me wisdom. Or M- M- Mao Tse Tung, who said that peace comes out of the point of a gun, uh, the point of the end of a barrel of a gun. That's not God speaking like God. It's God playing the part of a dreamer. It's a little bit of his consciousness embedded in this person. And then we in this dream have to wake up from that dream. You see, he's dreaming through us. He's the dreamer, but we are a part of that dream and we're dreaming. He's outside the dream, conscious of it. It's like a dream I had many years ago where uh, somebody came into the dream who later on in the dream I decided didn't really belong in it. So I went back to where he'd come into the dream and took him out of the plot and carried on without him and felt satisfied. Now it was a good story. Well, I was somewhat conscious that I was dreaming. God is totally conscious that he's dreaming. He's conscious that he's assigned these different levels of under of awareness to his creation that they all need to awake from that dream. Dreamers awake, like that beautiful um, cantata of Bach. We have to awake, we have to know who we really are. And as long as we are dreaming, as long as we worship things apart from him, rather than recognizing that everything is a part of him, we are idol worshipers. That is what idol worship is. But if in anything that we see or love, we see that as a window, and look beyond that to a greater reality, use it as a reminder of that greater reality, then that isn't idol worship. That's simply using images to try to grasp and to help ourselves to focus on a reality that we don't yet perceive with these eyes. This isn't bad. If you look at something that reminds you of love, if you find love in your mother and think, oh, that must be a little spark of what divine love is, selfless, kindly, Uh, supportive, even when I've made mistakes, compassionate. All of these things are God's love personified, a personification of something that's infinite. That is not idol worship, my friends. And so it's good to have images on the altar that remind you of him. But most important of all is it always to remember that uh, He is behind that. That doesn't define Him. No thing can define God. This is a reminder of something much greater. Years ago, I had an interesting experience. I was working in an office and outside my office, it was on the first floor, there was a beautiful garden and my desk was facing the window. So I enjoyed looking out the window at the garden every now and then, resting my mind, and then um, coming back to work with a refreshed mind. One day there was a big storm and the rain and wind and everything spattered mud on the window so that afterwards I could no longer enjoy the garden because all I could see was all this spattered mud. And, whether from laziness or whatever, I didn't get around to cleaning the window until a couple of Saturdays later. So that for that uh, period of about two weeks, perhaps, I had had to endure something rather than be able to enjoy the garden. It was always sort of filtered through this, uh, this mud, these spots of mud. Then I finally got out one Saturday when I was free and cleaned the window and went inside and looked and I said, Ah, oh, what a beautiful window! Then I smiled, because I realized that the reason I was calling the window beautiful was that I couldn't see it anymore. I could see the garden through it. And so it is when you see beautiful people, when you see beauty anywhere, let it always be a reminder that that's only a window through which you're looking at something much greater. Try to see God in everything. But remember also that... uh, If you have the thought of ego, if you think I and mine, if you're always thinking I am the doer, I did that, that's mine, etc., then that will be like mud on your window. You won't be able to see God, although he's in you at your heart. You won't be able to see him clearly because of all that mud of self-consciousness. Nor can you see God clearly through the windows of darkened minds. You see him most clearly through the windows of saintly lives. Those people who have rubbed away, cleaned away, washed away all the uh, darkness, the mud of delusion and ignorance and ego. Whereas if uh, if you were talking to somebody like Al Capone, it would be God talking too, but it would be filtered. It's like the a stained glass window of a church if it were covered with soot you wouldn't be able to enjoy the beauty of those colors even if the sun were shining and there's another aspect to that even when the colors are clean the windows are clean if the sun is not shining those windows will be dark and so god is there but we also have to bring him to life in our consciousness it's not only removing in a negative sense the the soot of egotism and selfishness and pride. It's also bringing that inner soul consciousness to life in ourselves by love of God, by enjoyment in his presence, by sharing everything that you do with him. I would like to propose just a simple little experiment. Try thinking of God in the second person. Try doing it for an hour a day. Then expand that to two hours a day, if you can, three hours a day. Gradually expand it until it becomes a habit for you, second nature. Just try talking to God. If you go to church, almost every hymn that you hear is a song about God. A mighty fortress is our God. It's always He in the third person. Think of God in the second person. Love Him in that way. And you will see that what you lose in this world, what uh, is broken for you in this world, in which you put so much hope, all of this is just to help break your attachment to limitation, that you may see the secret mystery behind all things, behind every human being, behind every wonderful experience. The mystery is that God is doing it all. God is talking to you through me right now. God is listening to me right now through you. God loves God. God serves God. Live in godly consciousness and you will see that this world, stripped of idol worship, becomes a living altar on which you can worship him in every stone, in every tree, in every human being. May his joy fill you.